Good morning, everyone. We're glad and thankful to have everyone here, especially if this is your first time uh, back. We're thankful to, uh, to have you with us. We've been going through the parables of Jesus, and we're going to be continuing that uh, this morning. And I, I guess I'll give you a little bit of a, the, the method to my madness here. I had just chose parables, and I was going to randomly go through them. And, um, and then I decided, well, let's go ahead and do this a little bit more systematically. So we've been going through Luke's parables, first of all, in order. Um, not doing all of them, of course, and then we're going to go through Matthews. Now, I say that to say this. If you think, man, Craig is talking an awful lot about money these days, just realize it's not my agenda, it's Jesus's agenda. So I'll talk about it as much as he talks about it, and then we can all realize that's probably a fair amount to talk about money. So that's going to be our topic once again this morning. Uh, when I graduated high school, the Canadian government stopped printing $2 bills and instead started using $2 coins. Now, part of the agreement was that the $2 bill would continue to be legal tender in Canada. So I, like most other Canadians, have a stack of $2 bills still floating around my house today. But just this week, I found out that the Canadian government has said, as of January 1st, 2021, stores may now begin to refuse accepting the $2 bill as legal tender. So that puts me in quite a spot. I know coming up very shortly, my money is going to be worthless in terms of purchasing power in stores. And I have to decide now what action I'm going to take because if I wait too long, there comes a time when there's nothing I can do about it. So what does a wise person do when they know the purchasing power of their money is soon going to run out? That's actually what our parable is about this morning. And Jesus is going to let us know that the purchasing power, not just of the $2 bill, is going to run out one day, but the purchasing power of all money is going to run out one day. And Jesus is going to whisper, for those of us willing to listen, he's going to say, and I can tell you how you can use today to make sure that your money still has value even beyond the time when it's worthless. So if you're interested in knowing how Jesus will teach us that, that's the discussion we have this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16 looking at verses 1 through 13. And the parable begins in this way. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that that man was squandering his property. So he summoned him, and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. See, the rich have a problem. You ever think about that? Yeah, rich don't have problems. The rich have a problem, and the problem is this. They have so much property, so many possessions, so much to oversee, that they have to hire people on different levels to come in and to help them oversee and manage all of their possessions. Now, the most trusted of all of the positions that a landowner would have in, for, in the first century would be their estate manager. Their estate manager would function just as if they were functioning in every business transaction. Their signatories on all of their accounts. They can create any sort of legal documents. In fact, this is a little bit later than Jesus' day and time, but there's a, uh, a second century legal document that says this. I have empowered you by this document to administer my estate, to arrange new leases, to give receipts in my name, to transact any business conducted with stewardship, just as I can transact it when I am present. I rely on your good faith and confirm whatever you decide about them. 
So it just gives you an idea of the kind of power that this estate manager would have over the rich person's resources. But what do you do when you're the rich man and you start to hear rumors? This man has been squandering away your possessions. If you think you know that word squandering sounds kind of familiar, it's the word we found in Luke 15 that talked about what the prodigal son did with his money. So he's being wasteful of the boss's money. And so the boss calls him in and he says, what is this that I'm hearing? And there's silence, which the silence is likely an admission of, hey, what am I going to say? You caught me red handed. The man is summarily fired and he's told, turn in your bookkeeping because you're not going to be working here any longer. And it creates a crisis for the estate manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am too ashamed to beg. What's a person to do when they lose a job and they have no viable options. And so the man is thinking about what can I do? And he kind of creates this list, but as soon as something comes up on the list, he just as easily dismisses it. He says, well, one option is I could dig, but the problem is what's this guy been doing for his career? He's been going to the nicest restaurants in town, drinking the nicest wines, eating the choice cut of meat, creating business transactions not exactly creating the kind of a physique you need for digging ditches. And so he realizes he's not capable of that job. And thinks, well, I guess I could beg, but the problem is with begging is, what would it feel like being the guy who was at the table that had the most expensive bill at the restaurant for lunch to be the guy sitting outside the door saying, "Um, can you spare any pennies for me? Because see, in this culture, when a person lost their job, they didn't just lose their jobs. For, for us today, if we lost a job, we might go home and say, you know what, um, we're going to have to start eating rice and beans, and we're going to have to start tightening things down a little bit. But this is a culture where it's not just your job, but your home is associated with your job. So to get fired is the process of going from being kind of this elite part of society to going to being homeless. And the man is kind of staring down the barrel of that reality that this is where he's going to end up. And he realizes he doesn't have the skills or the resources necessary to be anything but an estate manager. But imagine him trying to find another job as an estate manager. You know, you go in and you say, here's my, here's my resume. And he looks over, he says, well, who's the last person you worked for? What's the rich guy down the road? And they call the phone and they say, hey, would you recommend this estate manager to work for me? Well, what's he going to say? No, he squandered my resources. So he has one skill set. He can't do these other things can't get a job in his very own field. So what is a person to do when there are no viable options for them as they look at their possibilities and as they look at the work that's there for them? I mean, imagine this person calling you up and saying, here's what I did. The news is going to break in the morning. Uh, What can I do to make sure I either keep this job or get another job or have a place to live? And I think I'd use that well-known phrase. I think you're up a creek without a paddle. Nothing you can do here, right? This guy is crafty. This guy is good. This guy won't take no for an answer, and so he comes up with a plot and a plan. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as a manager, people may welcome me into their homes. See, whatever plan he thinks of, whatever plan he comes up with, it has to have this result. People are going to welcome me into his home. And again, 
all of us are thinking what? There is no plan. You know, your best bet is to wave the white flag and say, it's not going to happen. But he thinks he's come up with his plan. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 5 now. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. See, the door of opportunity is closing for this man. And he's going to use every inch of that door of opportunity to create something that might secure his future. So what's he going to do? He acts like, because he knows, nobody else knows he's no longer the estate manager, he continues to act and function as if he still had his job. First thing he does is he summons these other people. That language is the kind of language of boss or authority. I mean, if they knew this guy was fired and he summoned them, like, I'm not coming. But it's as if the manager, the owner himself, summoned them. And so when he comes, the, the first guy gets there, he says, how much do you owe my master? And so what this is, is that the, the rich man owns a piece of property that he has now leased out to tenants. And one of three common ways of how those leases would be structured would be there would be a set amount every year the person would pay out of the, the produce. So in other words, you can farm my farm, you can do all my work, Every year out of your crop, just simply give me X amount. So the first man, his amount is this 100 jugs of olive oil. And the guy sits down and he says, hey, let's make it 50. And he quickly does it because he knows the door of opportunity is closing. Now, in terms of value of that reduction of, of, uh, five, of 50 is probably about 500 denarii. It'd be about a year and a half's wages of the average person just got knocked off of your annual bill for your property. I mean, your mortgage is now being significantly decreased. He does it then to another guy who owes him wheat. 100, he says, make it 80. Again, a very similar reduction in the value, about 500 denarii is the value that has been reduced. And it seems like he's probably done this with others. He's going to take this closing door as an opportunity to secure himself a future. And he does these business transactions. And you wonder, well, how is that going to help him with the goal of ensuring himself that people will welcome him into their homes? And this culture is defined by reciprocity. It's defined by the notion, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so he's betting on this assumption that when he shows this, this kindness to someone else, that later when he comes in and knocks on the door and he says, either I need a job or I need a place to stay, they're going to open the door and say, come on in because I owe you one. And so he thinks that this is the way that he's going to secure his future is by doing these shady business transactions. And then Luke chapter 16, verse 8, and his manager commended the dishonest manager because he had acted Truly. Pay really, really close attention to the language here. He is not saying, in spite of the fact that you acted truly, or even though you acted truly, but because you acted truly. He is commended or he is praised by his master. And notably, this creates a couple of problems. Almost any interpretation you take of this parable, there are certain pieces that people say, but this piece doesn't add up. And this is the piece where people interpret the parable in the ways that I do, saying, well, how would the master commend him for this? Remember, this is the guy who squandered your property. Now, this is the guy who has just reduced your annual um, incoming flow of by probably 
tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars total, and you're going to stand back and you're going to say, hmm, well done. The, my only understanding or explanation of this would simply be that there are some people, and this man clearly is, is very wealthy, like we're just talking about his rent portions here, that there are some business people that even when they end up losing in a business transaction, they can respect the fact that they just got outplayed by someone. They just got outwitted by someone. And so I think that you have this boss not saying, hey, I, I love the fact that you did that, but he at least is going to say, hey, well played, because I didn't think I fired you, and I didn't think there's any way you're going to get anything out of it, but somehow you managed to get something out of it. The other thing that becomes an issue for us is the question of ethics. This is the part of the parable where we all start to get the heebie-jeebies, right? Like, has Jesus forgotten about that business ethics class that he went to? That this really isn't how you should do business, and we shouldn't be commending people for doing this sort of thing. Now, what we realize, this parable is not about, Jesus does not say, now go and do likewise, okay? Jesus is not giving us an example in which we should follow, but Jesus is trying to illustrate a point. And he's using this story for that point. So what's the point? Good thing is, Jesus gives it to us. That's in Luke chapter 16, verse 8, in the second part now. Where Jesus said, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. What Jesus bemoans here is he says, You know what's really interesting is when you look at the children of this age and you look at how shrewd they are and how creative they are, and how ingenious they are, and you compare that to how creative or ingenious or hardworking people of children of light Christians are, he's like, it's no comparison. Think about how hard this guy is working for something, and yet compare that for those of us who are working for eternity. Sometimes it's a night and day comparison. So as I think about this concept of being shrewd and, and, and genius and creative, I think about um, a, a guy named Sam Zemuri. Uh, his nickname is much easier to remember. He's called Sam the Banana Man. It's the early 1900s, and there's huge business industries coming out of the banana plantations in South and Central America. There's one large corporation that's kind of running the show, the United Fruit Company. And so the United Fruit Company is worth millions of dollars, owns thousands of acres of land. But Sam the Banana Man wants a piece of the business. He hears about a 5000 uh, acre plot that comes available between Guatemala and Honduras. But the law is under dispute in terms of who actually owns it. United Fruit Company dispatches all their high-powered, high-paid lawyers to go in and to track down every piece of paperwork so they can figure out exactly who the right business owner is. Sam knows he can't go head-to-head -head with their legal um, team, and so what he does is he talks privately and secretly to each of the landowners, and he buys the land from both. When United Fruit Company comes out and says, we figured out who owns the land, it's this guy, Sam stands up and says, good, because I own that land, I bought it from him. Now the United Fruit Company is not going to lay over dead because Sam's problem is to get the fruit out of his land, to get it exported back to the United States, he has to build a bridge across the Utica River. But United Fruit Company was notorious for having, let's just say, very cozy relationships with government officials. And so the government passed a law, you cannot build a bridge across the river. So what is Sam to do? Well, what Sam does is he tells his engineers to build a really long pier at the end of this side of the bank of the river and build another really long pier at the end of this side of the river. And then he built a pontoon that he would put right in the very middle of it. He put train tracks on those two piers. 
and the train would go to the end of the one pier, it would stop, they would offload it from that train onto the pontoon over to the next train, and then the train would go off. And people just stood back, except for United uh, Fruit Company. Everybody else stood back and said, well done, Sam the Banana Man. See, Sam and our estate owner, manager, have something very much in similar, in, in common, which is when you come up against something that it seems like there's no pathway forward, they kept persisting and pursuing, being ingenious, being creative in order to get what they want. And so as we look at Sam and as we look at this estate manager, we have to ask the question, does that sort of tenacity typify the life we have in Christ? Does it typify our life in the kingdom of God? Or do we say we are put to shame when we are put beside them? See, that's the concern that Jesus has, is when we're put up against these people who are so passionate for business, we come to find that maybe we're not nearly as passionate for the kingdom of God as these people are. Jesus will go on to offer several kind of points of application in verses 9 through 13. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Now, there's all sorts of things I'd like to say about this. They kept getting edited out, edited out, edited out. And so I'm just going to say two things about this kind of concluding statement of Jesus's. The first is I want to reemphasize something from last week. That's about the limits and the potential of wealth. What Jesus is saying, he's actually using a very disparaging word as he talks about money wealth, resources. Um, and as Jesus talks about money, wealth, resources, he, he simultaneously talks about how little it is, how insignificant it is, and yet simultaneously saying, but there is a way to use it now that can have significant difference. That what you do with this little thing is an indicator of what will happen with much greater things. That what you do with dishonest wealth is going to impact what happens with true riches. And so Jesus is simultaneously trying to devalue money as he also recognizes its value to contribute into something that is far more long-term. So he wants us to recognize like that estate manager, there, the door of opportunity is closing on this low thing we call money. And those who are wise are going to seize that opportunity to ensure that when the door closes, there is an opportunity waiting for them in eternal homes. And so Jesus wants us to realize the limits and the potential of money. But Jesus also wants us to gather and, and embrace this idea of a single master. People often talk about time scarcity, but I want us to talk a little bit about something called energy scarcity. I think for a lot of us, energy scarcity is a bigger issue than time scarcity. I have far more time than I can use because my energy can't keep up. For me, it's about seven or eight o'clock at night. I mean, don't... Don't ask me to do anything productive. Don't ask me to do anything that's going to require thinking of any sort because my energy is out. And what we realize is that energy, because it's an expendable resource, we can only devote that energy in the effort of something, and something's going to get shortchanged. There's a guy named Andy Stanley who wrote a book called Choosing to Cheat. 
It's a Christian book, and uh, he said he had issues with editors when he proposed the title Choosing to Cheat because they didn't think it was a good title for a Christian book. But his premise is this. He says, when it comes to your time or when it comes to your energy, you are going to have to cheat someone with it. You're going to either cheat your workplace or you're going to cheat your family or you're going to cheat your faith or you're going to cheat something because the reality is you don't have energy to do everything. And so you're going to have to say yes to someone. And when you say yes, you're also simultaneously saying no. And someone is going to feel cheated. Andy Stanley's recommendation is, why don't you decide who should feel cheated and then cheat that person intentionally? And in a very similar sort of way, what Jesus is saying here is either money is going to feel cheated by your life or God's going to feel cheated by your life. So who do you want to feel cheated? Do you want money? I'm so thankful for all the creativity you gave me and all the, all the ingenious ideas you had for me and all the hard work you did in pursuing me. Or do you want money to say, hey, I feel like you didn't give me enough attention. I feel like you didn't work hard enough for me. I feel like you didn't pursue me hard enough. And what do you want God to say? I think we realize each of us want to ensure that God doesn't feel cheated. You will be devoted to one. That's this aspect of energy. And whatever we devote ourselves to, the other thing is going to feel cheated. And Jesus' encouragement for us as children of light is to ensure that God is not the one who feels cheated from our life energy. See, what I think Jesus is calling us to do is to reorient our relationship with money. Money has this natural trajectory that it wants us to go in. And Jesus is saying, if you could take all that ingenuity, if you could take all that creativity and just point it towards God, then you're going to be on the right track in the kingdom life. So as I think about this concept of, of reorienting and of redirecting our creativity and our energy, I think about uh, Frank Avangale Jr. You've probably heard his story. Um, as, a, as a young man, between the ages of 15 and 21, he was known for some of the no, most notorious, fraudulent uh, uh, impersonations, crimes, all of these sorts of things. Um, and by all accounts, he was very charismatic, very intelligent, very ingenious. But he just didn't want to do it to do honest things. So one of his early ideas was this. He noticed that at the airport that they would take uh, the, the airliners and the car rental companies. At the end of the day, they take all their profits and have it in a little bag. And they go and they drop it off at the Dropbox. Later that night, a security company would open up the Dropbox and take all the money. So here's what he decided he would do. He went to a store and he bought a security outfit. And he went to that drop box and he put a sign, out of order, please leave your deposit with the guard on duty. And he just stood there. And as people drove by, they gave him the money. He says now looking back, as like, how could a drop box be out of order? Like it was a terrible idea. But that's how creative and how ingenious he was. At the time of his arrest at the age of 21, um, he was arrested in France. There were 12 countries that were fighting for extradition because he had committed fraud in their countries. Spent his time in jail, and guess what they decided to do with him? The FBI approached him and said, we want you to work for us. Take that ingenuity. Take that creativity. Take that hard work. Take that passion, and let's use that instead for something useful and for something good. And that began a four-decade-long career with the FBI. He's also a business consultant. He will work with businesses, helping them. Uh, look at what are some of our vulnerabilities, because he's so good at finding those vulnerabilities. But what you see with Frank Abigail Jr. Is not, a, is not a complete orientation in terms of who he was. It was taking what he was doing and saying, let's point this in another better direction. And what Jesus does is in the parable of the unjust steward, he says, hey, you've got energy you're using. 
You've got creativity you're using. You've got passion you're using. Let's just make sure we're not investing that into something that's going to lose its value. Because just like the Canadian government announced about the $2 bills, they're going to lose their spending power. And Jesus is saying all of our finances are going to lose their spending power one day, but the wise are going to use that to ensure that eternal homes are open to them. And so the question coming out of our parable is simply this, are you going to be a wise person or are you going to be an unwise person? And my prayer is that we all embrace this concept of saying, I want to exhaust myself for the kingdom of God because I know that all those things will last for eternity. And if I exhaust myself for anything else, it's all going to come to nothing. Maybe you've not yet even decided that Jesus is the pathway you want to follow. See, here's the thing. When one recognizes Christ as Savior and Lord and Messiah, as his stake increases, you realize the stake and the value of all these financial things, they decrease. And then as Christians, we're just simply called to live in light of the reality of those two values. So if you have not yet had a chance to respond in your life to following Jesus, to making him the most important, we have that opportunity in the waters of baptism. To, to, to die to an old way of living and to be reborn again to a new way of life. Or maybe you're already on that pathway. And the commitment today is to say, I'm going to make sure that my life is completely oriented towards what I know is a closing door towards what God is opening for me in the kingdoms of heaven. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we enter into this week, we realize we don't go alone. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, once we finish this morning, if, if you have any kind of a need, just track down someone in the back, um, and we'd be happy to pray with you or talk about what's next uh, in, in your life. God bless.